This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David. We have an amazing show for you today. Linda Jay from Scalar Capital joins us. Linda is known for being someone who's a very, very thoughtful uh, investor in the space. She's had a lot of experience, and we talked a lot about her history before she got into crypto. Uh, She was at AIG. She was running risk management, and risk management as it is for traditional finance versus crypto finance is very different these days. The history, the data, the APIs, the correlation, all of those things are just very different uh, in these two different worlds right now. We talked about her history at AIG to the move to Coinbase, how she was chasing cyber criminals at Coinbase in the early days, and how she moved to work on product, how the flood of interest in 2017 was hard because they didn't have the infrastructure in place. And so we talked about the, the history of crypto infrastructure and what things are happening now. We talked about Scalar and about their focus on privacy coins. I thought that was really interesting because it's a two-folded situation. You have privacy coins, but then you also have, quote-unquote, the bad guys who could abuse those. And so do you, how do you handle that? So we talked about that. We talked about what she's reading, and she's reading a really cool book, or she just finished a really cool book right now called Play, which I thoroughly enjoy, and I think I'm going to be trying to pick up. And we talked about her passion for listening to other podcasts, and so there's a lot of good ones out there these days. This was one of my favorite conversations purely because it was more unscripted. We usually send questions to our guests ahead of time to really focus on some more dynamics. If it's a company, if it's a project, we want to focus a little bit more about the dynamics of what they're building. This one was just completely free-flowing. We had very little structure to it, and so it went to a lot of cool places. You're going to enjoy it. And so with that, I'm going to just let you know again that nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the conversation with Linda. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David, and this is our new episode of Base Layer. We have Linda Shea with us. How are you, Linda? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've been looking forward to this call for a long, 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 long time. Um, Linda, if you don't know Linda, Linda is one of the really most, I guess, sought after and respected investors in crypto assets these days. Um, I'm not going to sing your laurels all the time here. We'll dig into some hard questions and find out why you're such a respected investor. Um, but we like to do on Base Layer is talk to people about how they came into crypto, not necessarily the when, 
but how they came into crypto. And I think it's really interesting. If you find out more about Linda, and we'll talk more uh, about your history, you were at AIG and you were doing things in like risk management, which is fairly traditional finance. And then you moved to Coinbase and then you've now started your own fund. So the move from traditional finance to crypto, I think is something for the family offices and the high net worth and investors that listen to our show is is really pronounced in, in an interesting time because we're starting to see more traditional finance people like um, Tim Lee, who just left Bridgewater to go to True Digital and some of the, the, found, the partners at Goldman Sachs. So talk to us, talk to the listeners about, you know, kind of your background a bit. And then the the kind of the the why you you decided that you know leaving AIG to go to Coinbase and start this crazy world of crypto was the right thing for you to do. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I was really interested in Bitcoin uh, for a few years before joining AIG. Um, I was really fascinated with this idea that you didn't have a middleman when you were actually transferring money. And um, that that concept really struck with me because uh, of a few different reasons. So first, um, I was just watching my parents send money back home from US to China. And they were, um, I mean, it was just a really complex process and they were paying exorbitant fees for this service and it was just taking a long time. So when I was able to see this concept of um, people actually transacting, um, even though primarily during the time it was dark net markets, but when they were transacting, um, these were strangers that didn't know each other and they were able to send money really quickly back and forth between each other. And so I found that to be a really exciting concept. And uh, I also, um, this was um, from uh, my parents' uh, uh, background, but um, they grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China, where you basically, if you were well-educated and if you had money, this was a really bad thing because you were supposed to be a farmer and you were supposed to be um, actually like producing value and um, and being humble and not being educated. Um, this so this my my family was actually quite well educated. They had um, they were professors and um, they actually had um, everything taken away from them. And so for me, this was a really scary concept because it showed just how powerful governments can be and how powerful um, people could be just actually taking away um, people's assets. And so. Um, this also showed that government sentiment can change over time. So even if you had a really great government that you supported uh, very quickly, it could change um, and, and actually be something entirely against what you want. So um, for me, just um, this idea that you can protect your own assets, no one can take it away from you was really a powerful concept. So I, I really love these ideas. But um, for me, back uh, back in the early days of Bitcoin, it was actually largely associated with things like Silk Road, so using the money to actually um, purchase illicit um, items. And so I felt like this was um, this was going to be difficult for it actually to go mainstream because of all the illicit associations. So for me, um, I felt like you had to have a, a legitimate company, you had to have a regulator that was going to understand and really like push forward uh, the narrative of, of Bitcoin. And um, and because at this time, like the like there was a U.S. senator was trying to like shut down and ban Bitcoin. So I basically believe that like the only way this could really take off is if you had that education working with regulators um, actually had legitimate companies associated with this. So um, went to work at AIG with just Bitcoin in the back of my head um, was really attracted to the chaos of AIG because this was post financial crisis. Uh, working in risk management. And I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating work. Um, but then I saw um, uh, Overstock uh, accept Bitcoin as payment um, in uh, January 2014. And I th felt like this was the moment. And so um, I saw Coinbase was offering that service. So I just like from then and there just reached out to Coinbase and said, 
I believe in Bitcoin. I think you guys are the company to take Bitcoin mainstream. So I want to join you guys. So that was kind of my my transition. I want to push back a little bit. I know it's really early into the into the uh, into our uh, into our recording, but I want to push back a little bit because it's interesting. You mentioned when the whole Silk Road thing happened, and when there was a lot of you know issues with you know Dread Pirate Roberts and all that other kind of stuff that happened. Um, you mentioned that it wasn't the right time, and other people, you know, people that I'm very close to, people that I've invested with, you know, other you know, other people have st- you know stated the same thing. The 2011 period seems to be an earmark for a lot of people, um, but at the same time. And you seem to know, obviously, you're a historian on this, and I'm sure you've obviously, we all read about the history of money. The U.S. dollar has also been associated with money laundering and terrible things as well, too. But we don't have any problems with that from a psychological point of view. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think it. Um, yeah. So it basically money launderers will use any form of money. Um, they'll use like U.S. dollar. They'll use like virtual goods, like um, like uh, video game money, like they they find every form of, uh, of money laundering. But for me, um, the problem was that Bitcoin was largely associated with this illicit activity. When you think of the US dollar, at least during that time, um, you definitely don't think instantly um, criminal activity, money laundering. You think, okay, this is the form of currency that I use to pay for my coffee and to get paid out in my salary. So it was more like the percentage of association with illicit activity. I felt it was far too high during that time for this to actually go mainstream and kind of break out of that bubble of like dark net market use. And so for me, it was um, it was just like that connotation that came with it. People were much less willing to learn about it and much less willing to use it just because they thought it was just heavily associated with that dark market activity. So someone, you were doing risk at AIG, correct? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit more about the kind of things that you would do on a day-to-day basis. What was what was managing risk in traditional finance and then compared to kind of managing risk in crypto assets these days? Yeah, uh, so we were doing a lot of different things. So we were stress testing AIG's portfolio and basically kind of coming up with these scenarios, uh, like basically another financial crisis, a financial crisis worse than what we saw in 2008, um, and how that would actually affect the portfolio. So doing a lot of different um, scenario testing, uh, whether it be like credit risk or um, interest rate risk or any, any kind of risk. And so I was specifically focused on how this impacted equities uh, in terms of AIG's portfolio um, and how this is very different than um, than managing crypto. Uh, it, it's it's very it's actually very different. So a lot of the tools that you use within traditional risk management um, actually can't be applied to crypto, at least in a meaningful way. So um, the, at the very least, when we were managing a traditional portfolio, you had um, a long time series of actual um, of actual data of how this asset price had changed over time and how it reacted to different events. Like, I mean, you went as far back as like, you know, the the um, Great Depression and, and you, you were able to actually see um, all these different scenarios where as in the crypto side of things, it, it's a lot newer technology. I mean, Bitcoin at, at the very least is uh, 10 years old. And so we do have the time series of, of 10 years. But even then, 10 years is um, a very short period of time relative to risk modeling uh, traditional assets. And so um, for me, uh, it, you can probably do some risk modeling on Bitcoin, but when it comes to things like Ethereum and uh, Grin and all these like newer technologies, uh, there's just very little data to go off of. And even at that, um, with that data, there's very like nuanced events that happen that really um, cause changes in price. 
And so um, you have in this case with like um, with Ethereum, like you had the whole like ICO craze. And so this is something that um, we probably won't see again in terms of um, the sheer craze of ICOs because of the amount of regulation that's that's coming into the space. And um, there's just more guidelines around how you actually should do these properly. So I think that it's it's a lot rarer for these specific shocks to the system, time series that you have. So you have to look at crypto in a, a much different way. You also have to look at the actual technical risk within crypto. And I think that's something that you didn't really focus on as much with traditional risk management. You're, you're not worried about these actual protocols failing. At the end of the day, you're worried about um, about the uh, prices changing or you're worried about um, the collateral um, being under collateralized. You're worried about those kind of things. But in crypto, like these protocols are failing um, if, if not written correctly. Uh, there can be money locked up in the system. So you actually account, have to account for a lot of technical risk as well. And we've already seen that with like things like the Dow in the past and in 2016. And we're also seeing like the parity bug where money is being locked up. So you have to account for a lot more risk there. And so when I think about risk management in crypto, I also think about um, diversification from a technical perspective. So picking a theme that you think is really important in the space, like for, for me, privacy is a really important theme. And then within privacy, what are the technologies that can really um, push privacy forward? And then within that, you have to really think through like, okay, well, I can't just be completely overbetting on um, zero knowledge proofs because at the end of the day, zero knowledge proofs applied to a cryptocurrency standpoint is actually really new. And so um, we, we even saw like Zcash had a, a, pr a pretty bad bug that that was um, that was addressed by the team. And, and fortunately, I don't think anything happened there, but you can see that this technology is very new and it can fail. And so um, making sure that you're not overbetting on just one specific type of technical risk is really important for me. You know, if I remember my traditional finance days um, and as a kind of a, a fiduciary and running portfolio analysis and stress testing, you know, equities, you know, in terms of those modeling uh, techniques, you would look at, you know, say like the, the Russian financial crisis. And within that data set, you have data sets that are correlated to those equities. And so correlation is incredibly important um, when you're doing those kind of stress tests. And so what I'm hearing from you is that we don't really have the historical data sets to do that kind of correlation analysis yet, in your opinion. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, maybe with Bitcoin and, and kind of correlations with um, with like traditional asset classes. So if you're like a, if you're trying to think of Bitcoin and how it fits into your wider portfolio, maybe that works. But when you bring in like the completely new assets that are being created, um, even even like, yeah, like Grin just just launched just a couple months ago, like there's not enough data to actually look at how this fits into your portfolio. And so you've left AIG, you went to Coinbase, and obviously Coinbase was, I shouldn't say obviously, but uh, Coinbase has been a gateway for a majority of people out there. And I'd like to say, you know, it was a gateway for, you know, institutional and retail investors, but predominantly it was a gateway for retail investors. Um, but it did give us all in the world more access to cryptocurrencies. Um, and so your time there, what did you do there at Coinbase? And then when did you decide to uh, form your own fund? Uh, I had a lot of different roles at Coinbase. So my first role, I fell into that role because I basically told them that I was willing to take any position. Uh, I was willing to, because um, they were hiring for finance. So I was willing to fill anything. And so the first role they needed was a regulatory compliance investigator. And I honestly didn't even know what that role was, but I just took it. And so the role there was basically... Um, first uh, helping to build out Coinbase's compliance program. So uh, Coinbase is heavily regulated. 
Um, they are getting all their money transmitter licenses. They are actively educating regulators. Everything is by the books for Coinbase. So making sure that you build out a solid compliance program. But um, what's unique about their program compared to like just any traditional fintech company or money transmitter is you now have this blockchain that you have to watch as well. That's another data point in your compliance program. And so for us, uh, we were actually um, using the blockchain as, as a way of uh, kind of tracing Bitcoin. So I was uh, I was in the early days uh, working with law enforcement uh, to trace Bitcoin and actually try to catch cyber criminals. Uh, so I spent time on dark net markets and I spent time uh, really analyzing uh, Bitcoin blockchain, looking for just different patterns that uh, you could see whether or not this was uh, the same user. Um, so trying to look for illicit activity there. Um, in the early days, this was very manual uh, in, in terms of the pattern recognition. Uh, there, there are definitely like a bunch of different giveaways, like um, there are um, basically like there are certain patterns that you look for in terms of the um, the inputs and outputs. So like, um, you know that in any output, um, you basically can spend your funds and then the remaining um, funds that you didn't spend, um, they go into like a, what's called a change address. And so you know that change address is in your control because it's really like your money going back to you. Uh, so th there's a lot of like different techniques you can use and you can kind of like, um, I mean, it's called clustering. You can kind of just like group them all together and, and kind of like create this like graph of what's actually happening. So um, that was really interesting work. Um, but then I later switched over to be a product manager for internal tools at Coinbase. And part of that was because I felt like the process was so manual. And so I wanted to uh, be more efficient and automate systems. So I was working really closely with the engineers on, on how we can actually automate these more and, um, and, and, you know, not have as much human error in the process. So um, later they asked me to do that for, for all the internal systems. So I spent a lot of time working on not only in compliance, but also kind of improving our support teams. Uh, there was, um, I mean, especially during the huge uh, craze of 2017, there was just a lot of signups on Coinbase. And so support was drowning in these tickets and there was just, uh, there was just, it was just like absolutely chaotic. So because we didn't grow a, a, as quickly as the actual industry grew, we had to make sure that um, every system was a lot more scalable. And so I spent a lot of time just building out all those internal systems. Really liked the work and I liked the impact that Coinbase was having on the ecosystem. But um, I, I felt like the larger Coinbase got, the further away it was from the cutting edge of what was being developed in the crypto space. And this is only natural for a company like Coinbase. They need to um, they need to, you know, grow and, and, and they need to not move as, as quickly uh, because there's a lot more at stake. So for me, I wanted to be back towards just the cutting edge of what was being developed in the in industry and actually want to invest in it and support it and get um, work closely with the teams and help them. So left uh, September 2017 to to start Scalar and um, really. So so I know how to code, but I don't feel that I um, uh, that, I mean, I'm not a software engineer, so I, I felt like I really needed a partner to help me evaluate these assets from a, a deep technical standpoint. The code is completely open source. And so um, that is another data point that you should be using when evaluating crypto assets. So uh, convinced a software engineer that I worked with really closely on my team if he could um, be my co-founder and, and start Scalar with me. Interesting that you were in the cluster I'm not going to say the F word because then I'm going to have to go through the whole explicit thing on Apple, but the <laughs> cluster F bomb during 2017, because I remember people were trying to sign up for Coinbase and the KYC AML process, the taking of the picture of the, the, the driver's license and 
opening up those accounts would take almost four, six, seven, eight weeks sometimes because there was just obviously just the infrastructure was not there. And mm. one of the things I've been saying publicly is that in 17 and into the first you know quarter or two into 18, that we all put the cart before the horse. And so the infrastructure was not there. And so I'm curious, you know, it sounds to me from what you saw at Coinbase back then when things were starting to get hot, that the infrastructure just was not there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like no one had expected that kind of sheer growth within the ecosystem because we had all just seen like um, incremental growth. But um, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I had raised this multiple times. Like I was like, I shouldn't be doing this type of manual work. Like we should be, um, we should have this automated. Like this is just like I'm completely repetitive, and everyone's doing the same kind of repetitiveness. So this doesn't make sense. So um, that was actually part of why I like switched into that role because that that the the internal tools product manager role is it was a new creation. It wasn't like some there had been someone working on this previously, and so yeah, I, I think like. Um, if I were to, you know, eventually join another company one day and, and um, I would make sure that infrastructure is in place, um, making sure that you don't have technical debt. I think that was the really big issue um, was that um, as, as the company was growing really quickly, people were just adding to the code base kind of like in a way like hacking, hacking at it. And um, you really needed to make sure that like, OK, well, long run, is this the right code to be writing so that this can scale? Otherwise, you know, fast forward a couple of years, you're going to have technical debt and you're going to have to rewrite a bunch of things or break up into into smaller, uh, smaller pieces of code. So, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of lessons learned there. It almost feels like you guys at Coinbase were the the wall that was holding the dam before the water. It was just going to start pouring into like the small village and just wipe everyone out. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, we've all talked about, you know, the retail bubble. In how crypto, you know, Bitcoin went from you know, you know a thousand to two thousand, then all of a sudden, you know, at the end of seventeen December, it shot up to like twenty one thousand. No one at the front lines, and I'm defining Coinbase and the work that you guys were doing then at the front lines. No one has really spoken publicly about why that happened. Um, I've stipulated, or I've kind of suggested that, you know, a lot of retail investors missed. The, the bull run that we've had over the last 10 years in equities. Um, and also in terms of fixed income, you know, the yield, there's been actually a negative yield in fixed income. And so majority of investors have kind of, you know, dismissed, you know, fixed income as a, a purposeful investment vehicle. But I'm curious if you guys ever talked about, you know, when things started getting hot and things started getting kind of almost ridiculous to the point where you guys were running, you know, you probably weren't sleeping very much. You guys were just going you know, completely insane there. Did anyone say what what's happening here? What is going on? Why is this happening now? Yeah, um, yeah, there were definitely a lot of discussion there. Um, I mean, I so part of it, I think, was yeah, people chasing yields. But um, I also think that it was uh, this like new generation of, of younger folks that um, hadn't had they hadn't been investing in like traditional stocks or uh, or bonds and and they were just learning about cryptocurrencies and looking like wow this is cool internet money and I can make money off of this and so they were kind of just um, putting money into ICOs and back then like you could make money from it and so people were just like throwing money into ICOs buying what whatever was on Coinbase um, I remember a lot of people that would they would actually just um, buy whatever was the cheapest coin, like just notional dollar value um, on Coinbase. And so 
um, there was just like very little education on what was actually going on. They were just hearing these like get rich quick schemes and, um, and that this was digital money. And so like, it, it was just, it was kind of just like, a, I guess like, it was, yeah, it was a unique time, I think, yeah, because people were chasing higher yields, but at the same time, just like more people have been growing up around the internet and we're just used to like, oh, like I play these video games and within these video games, there's all these like in-game items and virtual currency. I'm used to this concept. If this can make me money, I'll just put more money into it. And so, um, yeah, it was this like unique, like storm that was like brewing with, with all of these different areas. But, um, yeah, I think it was, I would think it was largely driven just by the, like, I can get rich quick kind of narrative yeah i have to say that anyone who you know has played an online video game and for some people obviously age maybe 55 and up maybe they haven't done that but anyone who plays a game on their phone these days and i will share a little secret that i used to be slightly obsessed with fifa i was i I like Mm -hmm. soccer games and so if you played fifa 18 or 19 on your phone you know, they have this way of saying, okay, here's a really great player. Here's like, you know, the best player in the world. And, you know, it's going to cost, you know, you know, 5,000 FIFA dollars and you have to go and buy FIFA dollars. And it's like, it's, it's a, I don't know. I I know we've all talked about gaming in the kind of the crypto sphere, but that notion, I think you're hitting on in terms of the millennial generations and the younger generations that have just become so accustomed to having to buy these virtual you know, currencies to be able to buy something cool, I think is is something that you know needs to be kind of thought about a little bit more because I think that is a tremendous theme, um, and maybe more UI and UX needs to be approached in that particular manner. I know it is, but I think more and more we need to think about UI and UX. But to kind of move around, so you talked about Scalar and you talked about you know obviously leaving Coinbase and starting Scalar and getting someone who uh, has some coding capacity and and, uh, understanding the code at a very technical level. Um, And so I'm curious from, you know, understanding the the philosophy and the kind of the mandate that Scalar is is taking. I know that one of the areas that you are investing heavily in is in terms of privacy. Um, Talk to us a little bit more about kind of the mandate that Scalar is deploying, why you're focusing on privacy and some of the, you know, kind of the themes that are happening. I know we're, we've been talking a lot about snarks and about Mimblewimble and some of the new things that are happening, um, you know, out there. We also have this narrative that Facebook is now transferring to a whole kind of privacy network. Um, privacy seems to be an important thing for a lot of people these days, thank God. Um, yeah. So, you know, talk to us about, you know, Scalar and talk to us about the mandate and the focus on privacy and how privacy is becoming such a narrative these days. Yeah, uh, so Scalar only focuses on tokens and coins. So in terms of privacy, we're we're completely focused on privacy coins themselves. There's a lot of really great like infrastructure, like privacy focused wallets and um, and, and like uh, just just more tech along that that lines. But like we're just focused on the coins themselves. Um, so in terms of um, the reason why we care so much about privacy, well, fundamentally, I just believe privacy is a human right. Uh, I think that um, we're we're definitely um, we're definitely like pretty fortunate uh, w- in the U.S. when it comes to privacy. Um, we have access to tools that allow us to actually communicate privately, so we can use something like a signal. Um, but in not, in not every case, like someone has access to these tools to communicate, and they're being heavily monitored and surveilled um, by governments that don't necessarily have their best interests in place. So. We did have the Patriot Act, by the way. So that is, you know, there has yeah. been there have been some instances in our history that have actually not been that case. 
Yeah, which is why I say pretty fortunate, because I, I definitely think there are cases where that was absolutely not the case. But um, when I compare it to other uh, other countries where I've seen um, the government regimes uh, completely surveil their citizens, and, and, yeah. and I don't think they have the best intentions in place, uh, I, that that's the part that really scares me. But um, so I, I think privacy is a fundamental human right. Um, and then it really became apparent to me when I was actually tracing Bitcoin. And so for me, um, it was actually terrifying how much information I could see just from the blockchain. Um, and this was even before like Chainalysis and Elliptic came about. And so like I could just like go on this and kind of like see what people were doing. And th this is like a bizarre concept to me because um, we don't even see that in the traditional financial system. Like when you're when you just have your um, credit card, like you're, you're not broadcasting every transaction for people to see in a pseudonymous manner. It's just completely private and only these credit card companies and whoever they sell that data to have access to that information. So this is um, this was just uh, too transparent for me. And especially if you want to have something be it, uh, acting as a store of value, I, I don't necessarily want like anytime I uh, spend Bitcoin from that address, now all of a sudden they can see my balance in that address. And so uh, for me, I, I really believed in this focus on privacy coins. I think that privacy is never this like on off switch where like all of a sudden you've achieved privacy and no one can figure out what you're doing. It's always this like cat and mouse game over time. You know, chain analysis and elliptic got developed over time. Um, there's there's definitely like more um, surveillance of what's actually happening in the crypto space. And so uh, for me, uh, a coin that really just truly focuses on privacy and is willing to make uh, usability uh, trade-offs in order to keep it private is really important for actually it being private. And so um, a lot of people have talked to me about like, okay, well, what about if Bitcoin adds um, privacy features to it and it's just pretty good privacy? How do you feel about that? I think that'll work for uh, for a lot of people and I think that'll, just, that'll be just fine. But I think for people that actually um, care about privacy and actually like truly need privacy for their own safety, I think they'll need to use a privacy coin. I don't think pretty good privacy works in that scenario. And you, need, you again, it's a cat and mouse game. You're always going to have um, better technology that comes along to try to trace it. Um, and you've seen um, like Monero and Zcash that like, consistently um, try to improve their technology with the privacy focus. And so that's really important to me. And um, and within that privacy space, I, I talked about that earlier that there's the um, actual technology risk itself. And so um, these snarks and starks are extremely new cutting edge technology. And, and actually um, with, with starks, like there's very few people in the world that like truly understand how starks works. And that's why you have um, a company like Starkware get created where the actual creators of starks um, are creating a company around it and like kind of working with different protocols to integrate this. So because it's such specialized knowledge, you, it, it's certainly possible that things can go wrong. So I'm, it's really important for us to just diversify among the different approaches and all of them have different trade-offs. So like, like we've invested in, in, um, in projects that use, uh, they use secure enclaves. So they, they use this like hardware approach of like, okay, we can um, have this hardware do something called remote attestation. So we can attest that the code is running properly, but we can't actually see what's, um, what's actually happening there. And so like, that's a hardware problem. And you actually have to rely on the hardware manufacturers, the, the creators like Intel, um, to to have produced this properly and to not have built any backdoors into the system. So that's the trade-off that you make in a hardware standpoint. So all, all of these have different trade-offs. And for me, it's important to balance the portfolio to make the uh, to, to be diversified and also think about the different trade-offs that were made in the design of, of this approach.
So back about two years ago, I've been talking to family offices and high net worths about crypto for a while now. And, you know, there's been a transition from why would I do that to how would I do that? And that's a good thing. But back in the days of why would I do that? There was time and time again, you know, in some private settings where I would be talking about identity and, you know, the things that are happening with projects like Civic or, you know, things that are happening with storage like Filecoin and storage. And, um, you know, there were some critics out there that, you know, have just kind of embedded with the negative news, obviously, with Silk Road and Dow and some of the other things that have happened over the last few years. Um, and they've been very concerned about you know, illegal use um, and, you know, ISIS and drug traffickers and all the other fun people that just make our world just a, such a lovely place. Um, and so, you know, this notion of privacy, I get it. I understand, you know, obviously the value proposition of, you know, projects like Zcash and Monero. But for them, I think maybe if you can talk a little bit about how, you know, there's this notion of privacy, but how do we make sure that the bad guys, air quote, um, you know, don't abuse that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. So um, I, I worked a compliance program at a centralized exchange, so traditional KYC AML. And within this process, you're not just asking for someone's like name and date of birth. Like there's a lot more information that you collect from people um, and especially at different um, transaction volumes. So the more transaction volumes you do, the, the more detailed you can get. And so in, in the privacy coin case, if it's on these centralized exchanges and, and any time where there's like these like fiat rails and anytime these privacy coins are being moved um, uh, between different coins and, and, and you're collecting KYC and ML, I think you're going to have to have a higher degree of um, collection of data. And so you will probably have to provide something called the view key, which is within um Within some privacy coins, they have this concept of a key that you can use to view transaction details, but you can't actually spend the funds. So you can freely give this view key to people who you want to make sure that um, they can see your transacting information. So um, you would probably have to provide this view key to a centralized exchange. And this is no different than you just doing regular um, just you know, higher diligence um, of the KYC ML process. And so you probably have to provide this information. You'll probably have to provide additional information. But that at least um, for me, at least you now protect yourself from having your transaction be so public. Like you will still have this data within the centralized exchange or whatever place you try to share your view key with, like an auditor or um, your accountant for tax purposes. Um, but at least it protects you from the the like the general public of your transaction being broadcast. So I think it's going to be this like hybrid world where you're, of course, you're still going to have to comply with the existing system, but it's no different than like, honestly, like how we talked about with the US dollar, like cash, cash right now, like people are doing illicit things with cash, but people are also doing perfectly good things with cash. And you try your best to develop a compliance policy that limits this behavior. You're never going to have 0% illicit activity on any form of, of money and, and people are always finding out creative ways um, but you try to limit that and that's through KYC and AML on the fiat rails in particular. And so just you know as a caveat you know it was a great answer and I love this discussion but if you look at the history of the last 10 years of the you know illegitimate bad things that have happened with cryptocurrencies versus US dollar and some of the other fiats the kind of legacy fiats 
legacy fiat hand over hand has beaten the the, the crap that has happened you know with cryptocurrencies and so you know there's <laughs> there's you know a lot of people always you know talk about the differences there and saying that crypto is used for bad things and for harbingers of you know evil and, and then obviously you know we can obviously talk more about that in terms of the relationship between traditional fiat what's been done with traditional fiat but um, you know, some of the other things that have been talked about a lot recently, and I know it's a little bit of a, a difference from privacy, uh, but there's this notion of decentralized finance. And you have a traditional finance background in risk. And so I'm curious to get your kind of opinions on this. So, you know, with DAI, you know, people are starting to create CDPs. Um, they're using Maker in very, you know, specific ways. They're loaning. Um, and they're providing almost collateralized loans uh, for other things. There's a lot of interesting things that have happened over the last, you know, six to eight months or so uh, with this, with all of that's kind of bubbling in DeFi. And so I'm kind of curious with your kind of insight into AIG and, you know, obviously into the markets, you know, when things were very, very difficult. You know, how do you feel? Do you feel that there's any comparisons? Are you concerned with the kind of explosion that's happening in DeFi right now. Um, are you monitoring it to potentially look at it as, as an investment theme in the future? What are you thinking? Yeah, I, I'm really excited by the the amount of uh, development and interest in the DeFi space. So um, I follow it pretty closely. Um, in terms of what scares me about this is when people talk about uh, whatever term you want to use, but Dan Elitzer has used the term super fluid collateral. That concept just terrifies me um, because you essentially have, well, so in a system like Maker, uh, you basically have to be over collateralized because there's um, no trusted entity that is ultimately taking that counterparty risk. And so you basically have to put um, 1.5x um, over collateralization in the system to generate this stablecoin die. And so it's very capital intensive. And oftentimes people are putting way more than 1.5 because they, they want to make sure that they don't fall below the collateralization ratio. So um, it's very capital intensive. And so people are talking about like, oh, well, maybe we can now take that collateral and loan it out onto these other protocols where you can actually earn an interest rate. Uh, so you can use something like a compound or Dharma and, and actually earn interest on this. Um, and, and that's that's really scary because the whole point of the collateral in the first place was to make sure that should the prices fall really quickly or should some bad event happen with um, Ethereum itself, because that, right now at least DAI is um, only single collateral, uh, eventually it will be multi-asset um, collateral, but um, if, if something bad happens to Ethereum and the price of uh, Ethereum collapses, you at least have that collateral to be backing your DAI. But when you've now loaned this out into another system, you kind of remove this concept of, of you actually providing that collateral in the first place. And it's especially dangerous when you now add on that um, technical risk into the system because um, we've seen before that these protocols are very new and that there's always uh, issues that can happen. And so um, a really dangerous scenario is now you've loaned out all this collateral into this one lending protocol. And now this lending protocol um, has a big bug where all of a sudden the funds get completely locked up or someone was able to hack uh, the system. And you're now able to um, now now you essentially have all this collateral um, that is gone and you now have this stable coin that was generated that's backed by nothing now. And 
on top of that, people were using that stablecoin to now buy um, some more more ETH or whatever cryptocurrency they're trying to buy. So you just have this like tangling, like this intermingling of all these different assets. And um, they really, at the end of the day, like there's there's not enough collateral there. And this is this is like you can draw analogies to the financial crisis where you you essentially have all these like subprime mortgages that are um, that people did very little due diligence on in terms of actually giving out that mortgage. And um, all of a sudden, these subprime mortgages are now really not worth much or not worth anything. And you have the collapse of the system all at once. And now you've had um, uh, these credit default swaps issued in order to ensure this event happening, but no one expected it to just like collapse all at once. And so now you're not good for your credit default swaps. And so it's the same concept in DeFi where like, if you have this collateral being moved around in too many different systems, and there's a like a single point of failure that has actually too much um, that ha has um, has technical risk or, or something bad happened in the system, like you can collapse this entire system because it was really all just like hinged on one little aspect of it. And so that that concept really terrifies me. And so I hope that um, again, I, I do think this is like inevitable. I think that people are just, they want to be creative with their collateral because it is, um, it, you know, it is like for them just wasting the collateral in, in the system. Um, so I think it's inevitable, but I do really hope that people kind of self-regulate in that case. Um, and then they try to put in guidelines, like maybe in the protocol, it's, it's hard coded of how much, um, how much of the collateral can actually be loaned out. So you actually have like percent limits in place. So I really hope that there's some self-regulation there, but um, I also saw a project that was doing um, decentralized credit default swaps. Um, it's unclear whether or not it's actually going to work, but it's like, it's scary because they were kind oh, of- Oh, you did not. You did, did not. I oh did. no. I did. And I had this like, just like this pit of like, just terror like in, in, in my stomach because it just like, yeah, I'm concerned we're going to just like basically build out all these systems and it's going to be beautiful and so open and everyone can participate um, who didn't have access in the first place. Um, and and then all of a sudden you're just going to recreate the exact 2008 financial crisis. And so that that's kind of my ultimate fear. So I, I hope that these like technologists that are um, creating really neat things really think through the like ramifications of their decisions, like when they allow this collateral to be loaned out, what this can actually cause. And so really being thoughtful about the design of, of these uh, DeFi systems. For, for, and this is just shocking to me. I, I was gonna, you know, I was thinking, okay, you know, CDS and I was like, oh, wait a second, you know, maybe that's already happening. But for all of us in crypto that claim to be so well-read, and I know Linda, you are, cause we'll talk about that later, but for all of us who claim to be so well-read, how we do not understand the notion of black swan events <laughs> is, and, and now we're building this is something that we all need to address as a community very quickly. Um, Linda is absolutely right that this, this just you you will destroy this thing faster than it was ever even created. And it's just a terrifying thing to think about. I didn't even know about that. I knew, obviously, you know, some of the things were happening with the cloud realization and things like BlockFi and Compound and Dharma. But I did not hear about that, and that is just a very alarming fact. So we need to watch on. We need to watch that for sure. Um, before we get into our new uh, kind of topic, uh, which we call signal to noise, um, I just wanted to also talk. Lastly, um, you've provided some thought and some information and some guidance on you know how to evaluate investments in in these projects. 
Um, there was a conversation from about a year ago where you talk about how you guys look at the team and the community and the token model and the the kind of the incentives. Can you talk a little bit about how that's all matured? Um, how has you know the tokenomics started to mature? How have the incentive models changed over the last two or three years you know, since you've been active in the market? You know what's happening in terms of evaluation and valuation of these projects? Yeah, uh, in terms of the token economics, I think people are being a lot more critical of like first of all, like whether or not you need this token in the first place. Uh, so I, I think like you're seeing less and less of this like just straight like like uh, like app coin case where okay you need this coin in order to access the system or you need this coin to just pay a fee in the system in order to access it so being a lot more thoughtful about how this token can actually accrue value um you are seeing some like over engineering of it though um and so so when there was the whole like um mv equals pq like velocity uh discussion going on whether or not these assets actually accrue value if it's really high velocity it's actually not going to be worth anything so you've actually um interestingly enough seen teams like over engineer the token economics now and they'll just like arbitrarily lock up the token system and they'll be like oh like yeah everyone needs to like stake this token in order to um in order to use the system because we're trying to slow down the velocity and so um, I'm actually seeing this like trend towards like trying to keep velocity really low on purpose without really thinking through like why this like why this is actually necessary in the system in the first place. Um, so so seeing the trend there has been pretty interesting. Um, and then in terms of um, yeah, in terms of the evolution of like just the projects themselves, I think um, I think people are just being a lot more thoughtful of like um, of the raises right now. Um, I think that. Um, you're seeing the like sheer just like mount raised come down a lot and the projects are being a lot more thoughtful about like what they actually need in order to ship this product. Um, I'm seeing that the teams are, um, I mean, the team quality is actually a lot higher from a couple years ago. Um, the craze of the prices in 2017 brought a lot of attention into the space, but then a lot of the um, the talent is staying because they fell down the rabbit hole and have been really interested in the technology. And so you actually have people that have a background and actually um, uh, actually what they're trying to build. So like um, I was just talking to the near near protocol team um, and they um, they actually have a background uh, from MemSQL Mem and like building Most, out. Yeah. Right. So it's like this is like an actual team that like is familiar with how to build um, sharding, whereas like you before had teams that are just like starting to learn how to um, do sharding and, and kind of like learning as they go. So I think the team quality in terms of experience has just been higher recently. And so it, it's been really good to see. And I'm I'm, I'm more um, excited about kind of the people that are building during this bear market right now because they actually um, really care about the tech. So so the trend has been um, generally very positive in my opinion. So we're going to do our new segment. This is going to be a lightning round. And I have to thank Ryan Selkis for actually inspiring this a few weeks ago. So this will be about 30 seconds of the latest news and headlines and what, Linda, you will have to do. And um, we need to have like Jeopardy background music for this section. Um, what you'll have to do is basically say signal and or noise. So we'll start with this one. So New York Times exploring blockchain enabled publishing signal or noise. Uh, noise. Uh, I mean, it was just like the there was like just job posting saying that they're they need to hire someone for blockchain related stuff, and then they subsequently have taken down the posting 
Um, and so I think that like it got a little bit overhyped. I think they're just exploring what blockchain can be used for. And I actually don't even think they need it. But um, yeah, noise for me. JP Morgan and Facebook coin. Signal. Yeah, this is I, I, I differ from a lot of the people in the crypto community about this. Um, I know I know it's not an actual cryptocurrency like that's very clear. These are centralized entities. But um, the fact that um, Facebook and JP Morgan are talking about digital coins and they have this like wide distribution of customers who are now familiar with this concept of um, digital money and um, even maybe having to store their own private keys or set it, getting set up with wallets. Like overall, like I think this is a net positive for the ecosystem because of just like more awareness and education. Once people learn more about this, they're eventually going to learn more about um, actual cryptocurrencies. So I, 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 I'm, I think there's a signal. Fidelity Digital Services going live at the end of this month. Uh, signal. I, I, I mean, I definitely think um, it was like a little overhyped in terms of. Um, uh, I think people are saying like the institutional investors are coming with like this announcement. And people like often used like this and backed as like the example. And I mean, I, I, I think that it's like a lot slower of a process, but it, it is great to see like institutions like Fidelity come in, and they've been really smart about over the past years, educating themselves and driving that narrative. But um, I mean, it, it's very like, it's it's not rolled out to like everyone and it's not like, you know, all major crypto assets yet. So um, yeah, Signal so far. And then lastly, Justin Sun trying to announce $20 million of free cash. I didn't even see that. I, what is that one? I, I didn't, even, yeah, I, I don't follow Justin Sun these days. Uh, what is that? Apparently, he's just trying to get people to take a look at BTT and the uh, Tron and stuff like that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, just leave that. We'll leave that as, as noise. <laughs> I don't even keep up. So noise. Good. Um, the last two questions before we let you go is I know you're very well read. Uh, Linda introduced me to a uh, an app called Highlighter, which is amazing. Um, so what are you reading in the last week or so? And also... I find music is important so we understand kind of what's in your ears if you're on a plane, if you're going to, you know, if you're trying to read some some papers, you know, so what are you currently reading right now and what are you listening to? Um, so in, in the past week, I just finished this book called Play by Stuart Brown and Christopher Vaughn. And um, it's basically this idea of... Um, like why play is so important in your life and how it's important to get away from work to actually set aside time to play. And um, it kind of talks about like, like, okay, like just from a pure, like, um, like animal kingdom perspective, like um, where animals are so um, like everything's optimized around like getting food and surviving. Like why are, why do animals play? Like, why are they like just random, like, you know, like the, the lions just like kind of like playing the field. Uh, what is this actually add to them doesn't this just like take away their energy from like hunting food and so it kind of talks about like how um play actually increases creativity and you can create these like imaginative scenarios where um you actually um are learning new things and you're um you're able to when you are faced with a situation that you had imagined that you're able to actually address it better because you thought through different scenarios and so it talks about like the creative creativity aspect of play and just in general, how there's this idea of like a play deficit and how um, 
and how people can actually have like true burnout. And so it's important to like set that time aside to actually enjoy your life. And it talks about this idea of like different play personalities and how there's eight different types. And you should really like learn um, what type of play personality you have, because um, sometimes people try to force themselves into doing things that aren't actually fun for them and aren't actually break and it ends up feeling like work. So it, the book is it, it has really encouraged me to um, be better about um, setting aside that time to just really take away from checking crypto Twitter and checking crypto news because you get really sucked in and, and you really need to like reset sometimes. And it's good because when you come back to your work, you're actually refreshed and come at it from a, a different angle. So that I thought that book was was excellent. Um, and then in terms of music, um, I, I really wish I, I should listen to music more. I, I just been so sucked into podcasts lately. Um, but yeah, in terms of music, I really I've, I really have recently liked the band Dawes. Um, they, um, they're this like, um, like, uh, like folk band kind of, and they, um, they have like really beautiful lyrics and I think they're some of the best lyrics I've, um, ever listened to. So I, I really enjoy their music. Um, but I can't listen to, um, to, to music with lyrics when I'm working. So, um, kind of, I just play like general, like, uh, focus music on Spotify. Um, but then podcast, I just listen to podcasts nonstop. And so really love a lot of the crypto podcasts. You guys are really great, um, but have also listened a lot to um, things like Planet Money and Reply All. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly listening to something in my ear. That is really, by the way, so in terms of play, so you've read the book. So what are you going to do now? Are you going to go out and like go play basketball or soccer? Are you going to go play some video games? What are you going to, what are you going to go play? So, so I found out my play personality is explore. So like I actually, um, I become refreshed when I'm faced with like new circumstances and um, different places. So traveling is a really big aspect of it. And so I actually scheduled like the first vacation I've had in, in a long time. And it's, it's really unhealthy, I know. But um, I actually am taking like the full day off to go uh, explore Austin and just um, just travel around there. And so um, I found out that's kind of like my best um, form of, of really um, like de-stressing. Amazing. And I think you were just at South by Southwest. You might actually still be there right now. How's that going? Uh, I have yet to go to that. So um, uh, I'm uh, speaking on Saturday. And so I'm heading to Austin early to just kind of enjoy, enjoy Austin for a bit. Amazing. And just for everyone to, that is listening, uh, Linda will also be speaking at our event, FO256, which we are so excited about. Um, and to wrap up, Linda, we always like to give people a minute just to kind of where can you know people find you? Where can they find what you're writing about? Where can they find more about Scalar? You know, feel free to you know quickly drop a, a link or something like that so people can find you. Yeah, uh, I think the best place would be Twitter. Um, I'm at L-J-X-I-E, and that's the best place to reach me and find out what I've been working on. Awesome. So this was Linda from Scalar. We really enjoyed this conversation, and hopefully we can have you back again later in the year to see how things are progressing. And again, Linda will be talking and will be presenting at our little conference uh, next month, FO 256, and we really appreciate the time. This was a great conversation. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me.